So John chapter 6 from verse 22. Again, let's, uh, let's look at the context. Um, as, as I've said, uh, a lot of Jesus' signs that John records are connected to uh, a body of teaching. And in this case, uh, the body of teaching follows immediately after the sign. So the sign is uh, in the first part of chapter 6. And it's actually two, two miracles combined together to make one sign. So there's the feeding of the 5,000 in verses 1 to 15, followed by the crossing of the sea, the, um, the Sea of Galilee in verses 16 to 20. Uh, and if you, those who were there a few Sundays back, you can remember we saw how uh, in these two sign, two miracles together, Jesus did a, a very short reenactment of the Exodus, uh, taking the Israelites out into the desert uh, and feeding them miraculous food. Uh, and then he took his disciples across the sea. And um, notice verse 21, uh, they took him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to where they were going, which has echoes of Exodus. You know, they, they come out, they're fed in the wilderness, uh, they've crossed the Red Sea, but then they also, at the end of their journey, they crossed the River Jordan to get to the land to which they were going. So Jesus is um, basically presenting himself as the, the new and better Moses, uh, the one who is uh, not just replicating what Moses has done, but showing that he's actually greater than Moses. So we have... Uh, the, uh, the Old Testament background to that in Exodus 16, that's where the manna is given to the Israelites miraculously, bread from heaven. Um, remember also during that time of wandering, they're provided water miraculously, water from the rock. And that's in Exodus 17. And it's worth noting that because just before John chapter 5 is John chapter 4 and that's where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and talking to her about living water. And then in chapter 7, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles and at the time when in that feast they remember the water from the rock, Jesus stands up and says, Any, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink. From within him will come streams of living water. So those two themes from Exodus are kind of on either side of this this discourse here in chapter 6. Um, the other thing that we'll see as we go through this passage is uh, there's a repeated refrain, I will raise him or I will raise it up on the last day. Um, does anyone remember that old chorus? Uh, I am the bread of life um, and I will raise him up. Um, I remember singing that as a teenager. Um, from the All Together Now books, I think it was. Anyway, so that's a, it's like it's repeated a few times. Jesus is like emphasising the resurrection on the last day. There's also multiple references as we go through to life or eternal life. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight times he talks about giving life to people. So there's, 
uh, there's an emphasis here, again, on, on this, the goal, where we're heading, the resurrection, eternal life. Um, and again, that's an echo of the Exodus. The Israelites, all the way through their journeys, were to set their eyes on the land, the goal to which the Lord was leading them. Um, and remember from Deuteronomy, the Lord said, this land you're going to, it's a land of abundance, flowing with milk and honey. It's a land that the Lord cares for. So as they're being fed bread and water provided by God, it's kind of like a foretaste of this land of abundance, of provision that they're going into. Okay, so with that background, then we come to uh, Jesus has crossed the lake. The crowds wake up the next morning and realise, they know, know the disciples had left during the night. They realise Jesus isn't there either. Where's he gone? How did, maybe he's gone across the lake. So they all get into boats uh, that just happen to be passing by from Tiberias, verse 23, um, and go off to find Jesus. And it's interesting how John describes it in verse 23. The boats came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So it's a little bit of a strange way to describe what had happened. He doesn't say where, um, where the Lord had miraculously given, multiplied the bread. The emphasis is on where the Lord had given thanks. Um, throw it over to you. What, is there an Exodus link there, even? Where the Lord had given thanks, that ate eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. What, what were the Israelites doing before the Lord gave them bread? Complaining, moaning. They weren't giving thanks, were they? So it's almost like a contrast here. Jesus gives thanks and provides bread. So it's, he's not just the true and better Moses. He's actually the true and better Israel. Now, he's the one out in the wilderness trusting the Father to provide and his attitude is one of thankfulness to his Father rather than grumbling, complaining. Um, should make us think too a bit of the temptation in the wilderness, shouldn't it? Yeah, he was hungry, but he wasn't complaining. He was trusting the Father, and so he didn't give in to the devil's temptation. So the crowd turn up. Uh, they first 25. They find him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus now teaches this crowd. Uh, he's, he actually taught them on the other side of the lake too. Now he teaches them again. And what he, he does is he, he takes them step by step through really understanding what the sign on the other side of the lake was all about, what the bread was all about. And he starts where they're at, which is a very superficial level, and step by step he brings them through to the full revelation of what he, what he wants to show them. So he starts with that level one of the sign, purely the physical level, 
You're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So they're following Jesus because he is miraculously provided them bread and they're thinking, well, we don't need to buy lunch today either. We'll follow Jesus and he'll, he'll provide bread again. So he's just this, this miracle worker who can meet our immediate need of feeling physically hungry. Uh, he says, it's not because you saw signs. Well, they did see the sign, didn't they? Physically, they witnessed it, they experienced it. Uh, but he, what he's saying is that you didn't see the miracle as a sign. You saw the miracle and you just saw it as a wonderful miracle, but you, you, don't, you didn't see anything beyond that. You didn't see it as a sign pointing to something further, something more. They're still, yeah, they're still working things out, yeah, yeah. And remember, there's at this point, there's kind of like there's three circles. There's there's the twelve, so the twelve have already been chosen by Jesus. Um, then there are his disciples, which is actually a bigger group than the twelve, but those who have actually said, "I am," of left my job, whatever, to actually follow Jesus and to hear his teaching. And then there's the crowds who are just in it to see what's happening and they're probably thinking, we'll check it out for today and then we'll, we'll go back home if there's nothing in it. So they're not actually those committed, they're not committed to actually learning and being followers of Jesus. Yeah, but uh, So sometimes you see Jesus address the whole crowd knowing his disciples are listening in. Uh, other times he's addressing the bigger group of his disciples and then other times he just addresses the twelve who will become the apostles. So, level one of the sign is just the physical level. Then, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So, there's the next level of the sign, going beyond just the physical What is it that Jesus provides? It's a superior bread, a bread that doesn't just fill you up for the day and then the next day you're hungry. This is a bread that will fill you up and satisfy you, give you eternal life. Um, He says, on him God has set his seal. Uh, The phrase there is, uh, is used quite a bit in the book of Revelation where we see God putting his seal on people by putting his name on them. So it's this picture of God. God chooses and marks those who are his, those who bear his name. Uh, So Jesus is the one chosen and appointed by the Father to give this life-giving, eternal life-giving food. And rather than Moses, Moses was the one on whom God set his seal in the Exodus, now God has set his seal on someone even greater who can give that uh, bread from heaven. So, verse 28, they respond. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, Jesus 
Jesus was drawing a contrast between the bread that perishes and the bread that uh, gives eternal life, eternal food. He wasn't really elaborating on the technique of how to get this bread, but the crowd zooms in on that. They hear this word work, do not work for bread that perishes, but for eternal life. And, you know, because of their mindset, law, law, everything, nothing comes for free. Uh, if God is going to give us this eternal bread, then he's going to require that we do certain things in order to earn it, to get it. So they zoom in on that. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now this phrase, works of God, can actually be taken two different ways. It could mean the work that God requires. So the works of God are his, what he says in his law. Uh, or it could mean the work that God does, the work of God. See, so it's, it's called a subjective or an objective genitive in the grammar, apparently. The crowd go with that first one, first understanding of this phrase, what is the work that God requires of us in order to earn this eternal food? Uh, Jesus responds and he's, he says it's, he picks up on that phrase, he says it slightly differently, but we can't say for sure which sense he's saying it in, but let's think about it. If he's, if he's going with the second meaning, the work that God does, what is it that he's saying? You're saying there's works that you must do, but I'm telling you, no, there's, there is a work that God does and that work is to enable you to believe in the one whom he has sent, to have faith. Um, if he's going with that first meaning, though, uh, the work that God requires, uh, the end point is actually the same because he says, well, the work that God requires you to do is something that isn't actually what you do, it's faith. So it's actually, it is a righteousness that is imputed to you. You know, it's faith credited as, is as if it were works, as if you'd done the works that God requires, but by simply believing, you receive by faith that, that righteousness uh, imputed to you. So really, you know, However we understand the grammar, Jesus is making the same point. Uh, it's, it's not what you do to get it. It's, uh, it's you looking to God and trusting what God has done to give it to you. So verses 30 to 31, so they said to him, and it seems like they've picked up on that. It's okay, so we don't, we don't have to do works. We have to believe, all right, well, how are we going to believe? So what sign will do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So if it's not about our work, what's the work you're going to do? Then they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. There was a belief that emerged a little bit after New Testament times, but it could have already been in its seed form at this time. And there was a belief that when the Messiah comes, he will rain down bread from heaven like Moses did. That's something that rabbis taught later on. Um, it may be just that actually they uh, 
they stole that from the Christians. <laughs> they heard the Christians talking about Jesus being the bread of life and thought, okay, we'll, we'll take that idea and claim it for ourselves. Um, but what, what the crowd are looking for is, is this idea, well, if you're better than Moses, then the sign you, you give us must be better than the sign he gave, surely. And in fact, if you think about it, Jesus didn't give them bread from heaven, did he? He just took bread from the earth and multiplied it. So it's almost as if they're saying, well, we know what you did across the other side of the lake, but that doesn't quite cut it. It's not good enough. Moses gave us bread from heaven, so we want you to do something greater if you want us to believe that you're better or greater than him. Now Jesus brings them towards that third level of the sign where it's actually not about the stuff he gives, but it's about he himself. So verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's saying this, this, this ultimate giving of bread, it's not actually a human giving you bread, it's the Father himself. Uh, he still hasn't identified himself yet, has he? But he's, he's dropped a hint because he says, he uses the personal pronoun. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the earth. So this bread from heaven from the Father is actually a person not a substance, not a thing. They say, said to him, verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. If it's from God himself and it's bread that gives us eternal life, we'll never hunger again. We need this bread. Please give it to us. And then he, he says, okay, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So see how he's, he's brought them step by step from where they are in their superficial faith just based on the miracle, not understanding really who he is at all. He's brought them right through to see that he is the one that the sign is pointing to. He is the true bread of life. Um, now, I mentioned earlier the Samaritan woman at the well and the way this unfolds, Jesus' teaching unfolds here, actually follows the same pattern as the conversation that he was having with the Samaritan woman at the well. So we're just going to quickly look at that because it's, um, it's not just an interesting bit of trivial information. What it does is it, it brings together those two ideas from the Exodus of the water and the bread um, to, and combined they give even a, a clearer revelation of who Jesus is. So we saw uh, John talking to the, Jesus talking to the hungry Jews. Uh, the physical symbol, you came because of the loaves. Then the spiritual equivalent, the loaves are pointing to food that endures to eternal life. They respond, how do we get it? So they first they say, what works do we have to do? And then, well, what are you going to do? In other words, how do we get this, uh, this spiritual food? They say, are you greater than Moses? 
So they, they're understanding the Old Testament connection that's behind it. Jesus says, well, actually God will give it to you, this bread from heaven. And he's brought them to the point where they, they say, yes, we need it. We need this bread. Please give it to us. And Jesus says, well, I am it. I am the bread. Now, if you turn to John chapter 4 and have a look at the conversation with the woman at the well and, and see if we can identify what are, the, what are the same steps that he takes the Samaritan woman through to get from this level right down to seeing who he is. So uh, start from verse 7. So where, where's, what's the physical symbol and the need that's there with this woman? Well, it's a drink, isn't it? So Jesus starts, give me a drink. Get water out of the well and give me a physical drink. Okay. Then what's the spiritual equivalent that he then points her to? Spiritual, where, where does Jesus point her beyond the physical water to the spiritual equivalent of water? Look at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he's gone beyond the physical sign to the spiritual equivalent. Um, What's next? Verse 11. See how she's saying, well, where's this this water going to come from? How, How can we get this water? You know, the well's deep and... You know, are you going to draw it? Yeah. Um, are you greater than, not, not Moses in this case? Yeah, verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jacob provided the water in this well, so if you're greater than him, then you must be able to do something greater than digging a well and providing water for generation after generation. Jacob, are you greater than Jacob? What does Jesus respond with on the level of God providing? Verse 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never be thirsty again. The water I give will be in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life, which is that imagery of the Lord himself, the fountain of living water overflowing. So, it's the spring of water for eternal life. Um, and then verse 15, what does she say? Give me this water. So, so just like they said, give us this bread so we won't be hungry. She says, give me this water so I won't be thirsty. And then uh, we have to skip down a few verses because he goes into that conversation, that discussion about where is the place of worship and through that 
she says, uh, verse 25, we know the Messiah is coming. He is called Christ when he comes to tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus discloses, I, I am he, I who speak to you am he, I am the Messiah, the one who will provide, actually who forgives the Spirit. Um, and we, we know that when Jesus is talking about the streams of living water, that he's actually referring to the gift of the Spirit that he pours out when he's risen from the dead. But Jesus has, um, Jesus brings both the woman and these people to this point where they realise, uh, I have a need that nothing in this world is going to satisfy. You know, physical water won't satisfy it, physical bread won't satisfy it. There's a deeper spiritual hunger and thirst that can only be satisfied by God. And Jesus says, well, the way God satisfies that need is, is not with a miraculous water or miraculous bread, but actually with Jesus himself. He is the bread of life and he is the fountain of living water who pours out the spirit. Um, so, so, see, um, like we've been seeing, John just keeps having all these parallels and connections as he's, uh, he's unpacking this, the story of Jesus and he's brought these two threads from the Exodus together to show how they both point to him. Okay, the next section, verses 36 to 40, called The Mystery of Repentance and Faith and God's Sovereignty. So in light of the parallels between chapter 6 and chapter 4, they're highlighting the contrast between the Samaritans who actually believed when they met Jesus and then the Jews who don't believe. And so, uh, where are we? He says... um, But I say to you, verse 36, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So there's that contrast. The ones who should be believing, the Jews, have seen all this, they've had it, Jesus has explained it to them, but still they do not believe. And the, the reason he gives is verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So that those two verses bring up this what some people say is a dilemma between the agency of human beings in believing and the sovereignty of God. Because Jesus is saying, Well, the reason you're not believing is because you're not the ones that the Father has given to me. Um, so the the dilemma let's think about this for a moment and I suspect it's more of a dilemma for us in the modern world than it was for people in biblical times because uh, we think so, we think everything has to be all rational and worked out and logical and scientific and so we see something like this and we say, ah, oh, there's a, there's a problem with these two ideas. How do we, how do we understand how they fit together or not? Uh, whereas I think in biblical times, People had no problem with hearing God is sovereign and uh, you believe because he's chosen you 
and he's, he's done that. Um, but we're going we're gonna to just think a bit philosophically for the moment. If you don't like philosophy, you can have a five-minute nap. Uh, but it's because we, we, we try and wrestle with this and we try and wrestle with it from a philosophical viewpoint, don't we? So we think of it, maybe it's, it's a contradiction. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. So we've got God's sovereignty and if, that is, if it's all God's sovereignty, then it's all determinism, it's all just fate. You know, you're just locked into it like the Muslim who says, Inshallah, God's will, just resign yourself to fate. Uh, or human responsibility. And if it's all just human responsibility, then it's libertarianism, it's free will. Everything is just determined by the free will decisions of human beings. But, uh, but the two are incompatible. It's one or the other. So we, we might see it as a contradiction. How, the two can't be true at the same time we think. Or we say, well, it's a tension. It's not a contradiction, it's a tension. So we have God's sovereignty and human responsibility and there's, they're always kind of in this tussle back and forth and one affects the other and uh, we don't know exactly how they fit together but there's a tension. Um, and I think saying it's a tension can be a bit of a cop out, saying, oh, I can't be bothered thinking about it, so I'll just say, it's a tension, you know, maybe. Um, now, what, what uh, biblical scholars, theologians have picked up on is, again, what the philosophers call compatibilism, which comes from the word compatible, which says, actually, no, it's a view that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible they can, they're both, they can both be true at the same time and they're not at loggerheads. They actually work together. Uh, so, um, don't worry too much about all the titles. Um, egalitarian compatibilism. It says you've got God's sovereignty and you've got human responsibility and there's this overlap and they just kind of sit there together and some things are in the realm of God's sovereignty, other things are in the realm of human, you know, Agency, and then there's some things that are, there's kind of a an overlap where you say God and human beings are kind of working together. Um, the problem with that view, though, is so far you notice how all the circles they're the same size. So that's kind of a view that still kind of almost sees human beings as you've got God here and you've got human beings, and human responsibility is there and God's sovereignty is there, almost as if we are equals, two equal forces, human responsibility, God's sovereignty. But if you think about it biblically, we shouldn't actually see that, have those two circles the same size, should we? Because God is God, we're creatures, we're not God. So you've got God's sovereignty, this is, this is the way I'd say the Bible presents it, God's sovereignty, and then within God's sovereignty, we have human responsibility. God, in his sovereignty, uh, gives human beings responsibility, moral accountability, moral responsibility, um, freedom to make choices and to act, and so forth. Um, 
But the, the problem with that still yet is we're still thinking in, in philosophical categories, aren't we? Theological compatibilism, philosophical term. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. If we just talk about it like that, it's still very impersonal, isn't it? There's this thing called sovereignty and there's this thing called responsibility and it's these two forces. What do we see in the scriptures though and what does Jesus bring out here? Well, actually it's, what do we mean by God's sovereignty? We mean that God is the Father, the Father who is the Father of all things, who created all things, who rules all things, who oversees all things. That's his fatherhood is expressed in that way. So what does it mean for, what's human responsibility about? Well, it's about us being loved, adopted children, isn't it? So the Bible presents that whole issue not in philosophical frameworks but in relational frameworks. God is the Father and as he works sovereignly, his goal in all that he's doing is to pour out his love on people and to bring them in and adopt them as his beloved children. Um, if If you see it that way, why would we have any problem with God's sovereignty being much bigger than human freedom and responsibility? If God in his sovereignty, absolute sovereignty, only ever does what is right and good and what is good for us and loving for us with the goal of bringing us into his family. Um, A a, uh, illustration could be uh, a child gets a new bike for Christmas. Do they sit down with their parents and quiz the parents and say, so how did you get this bike? Um, where did you get the money and how did you sneak it into the house so that it would be there Christmas Day morning when I got up? You know, do they try and work out the, the sovereignty of their parents by giving them this brand new bike for Christmas? Or do they say, wow, thank you and delight in the joy of riding their brand new bike? That's the relational difference uh, that knowing God as Father makes. Um, so see how Jesus brings that out. And I'll just, just quickly run through the next section, which I've called Jesus gives us the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Another big word, that's a theological word that basically means that Jesus is simultaneously truly God, truly human. His human nature and divine nature united in one person. And that's, uh, that's what Jesus is uh, is touching on here. So see how they say, if he's, Jesus is the bread from heaven, verse 41, they grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? How can he say, so they can't work out, how can this guy, he's just a, we know him just as a man, how can he be from heaven? Because if he's from heaven, he's claiming to be divine from God. How can a man also be God? It's what they're grumbling, what they're uh, grumpy about. Jesus reiterates verses 43 to 46, really what he's just said earlier to the crowd. Well, you can't know this by trying to work it out logically. You only know it as it's revealed to you from the Father. 
So verse 44, the Father draws people. So you can't come unless the Father's drawing you. Verse, uh, he, verse 45, the Father teaches. So you can't work it out. You have to be taught by God to comprehend this. And verse 46, uh, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Uh, it is actually revealed to you through the Son. So actually if you come to me and believe in me, uh, you won't have this dilemma, how can someone be God and man at the same time? Because you'll receive that revelation from the Father and, and be able to believe it. Verse 47 uh, truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. True faith is a response to what the Father's revealed. We don't work our way up to faith through philosophy. Uh, it comes down to us from, from God. So Jesus says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Truly God, I am from heaven, I am divine. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Very earthly, physical term. So I'm flesh, I'm I'm human. So I'm from heaven, but I'm also a man of flesh and blood and bone. Um, So let's just very quickly look at this idea of flesh and blood. What's Jesus talking about here? Because he's really taken them from the image of bread and water, he now starts talking about flesh and blood. It's almost like he's replaced the bread with flesh and the water with blood. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you're to have eternal life. Uh, Now, uh, some people in the history of the church have said, well, that's referring to communion, the Eucharist. Unless you take the bread, which is the body of Christ, and take drink the cup, which is the blood of Christ. Uh, and I remember being told that as a child in the denomination I grew up in. That's why it's really important to get confirmed and go to communion because unless you eat, you won't have... So it's almost like saying, unless you go to communion, you won't be saved. But that's, that's come out of that later development, the idea that the bread and the cup are literally turned into the body and blood, therefore you need to take the sacrament, the Eucharist, in order to actually be saved. Um, So that's not not what he's saying. Uh, if, If we go back to the Old Testament, so again, rather than trying to put philosophical, non biblical concepts to try and understand this, we need to say, well what is Jesus is Jesus pulling something out of the Old Testament? Do we understand Jesus? Because everything he said was based on the scriptures. There are two places we could land when we go back to the Old Testament with this flesh and blood. The first is the fact that the Jews were prohibited from eating flesh that had blood in it. Um, You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And then later in Leviticus, Again, it's reiterated, the life is in the blood and, uh, it's, and the blood, it's the blood that makes atonement by the life. Um, now, though that command could be a counter against the pagan practice where they, the pagans actually believed if they 
killed an animal and drank its blood and ate its flesh, they would imbibe into themselves the, the character or the, the energy or the life of that animal. So if you kill a lion and drink its blood, you take on lion, you'll be a great warrior, that kind of idea. That commands, you know, is, is making sure Israel are distinct. They're not, they're not eating, drinking blood like the pagans in order to try and get the life of the animal into them. Um, some have suggested that that's what Jesus is referring to because he says, drink my blood, my blood will give you life. But there's a few problems with that in my view. Firstly, Jesus wouldn't use pagan imagery to describe his ministry. You know, he wouldn't pick up on some pagan practice and say, oh, it's, it's like when you, know, you kill a, a lion and drink its blood. You know, Jesus draws what he says from the scriptures. I don't think Jesus would scandalise the law like that either because this is, this is in the law. Jesus said, I haven't come to overturn or abolish the law. So if he, he's not just going to stand up and say, well, forget that, I'm going to scandalise you all by saying that you can drink blood, even more so you can drink human blood. I don't think he's not trying to shock people in that sense. Um, the other thing is that blood, even though it talks about life in the blood, blood isn't the imagery used in the Old Testament to convey the idea of giving or transferring life. What, what's the image that we see in the Old Testament of giving life to creatures? Yeah, breath. God breathed into the man the breath of life and he became a living soul. Um, Ezekiel uh, 37, the breath of God comes and resurrects the bones. Uh, so, um, so it's unlikely Jesus is using it in that sense. Right? It's more likely he's using it in the sense of what Ezekiel 39 says. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field, assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. Almost sounds like a direct quote, doesn't it? Eat flesh and drink blood. Uh, You shall eat flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of of Bashan, and you shall eat fat till you are filled, and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. So what's that that an image of? Of eating flesh and drinking blood. So it's a picture of judgement, isn't it? Um, And you see the same imagery in Revelation, don't you? God calls on all the birds of the year to come and eat the flesh of, of men and of armies. Uh, so eating flesh, drinking blood is a picture of God's judgment being poured out on people to the point where they're, they're killed and they're not even buried because the carrion birds have come and drunk their blood and eaten their flesh. There's nothing of them left. Um, but he also he calls it a sacrificial feast because if you think about it, what is a sacrifice? It is an act of judgment. The judgment of God comes upon the animal that's 
throat is slit, blood's poured out. Um, God's judgment is on that animal. It's a sacrifice. Um, so Jesus here is actually, I think he's picking up on that, that judgment, substitutionary sacrifice kind of language. Um, it's akin to when he he'd cleared the temple and he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, talking about his own body. Essentially saying, kill me, I will come back from the dead and that, is, that will be salvation. The judgement of God coming, not upon you, but upon me. I think that's what he's saying here. Unless you, unless you see me go to the cross and come under the judgement of God, like these people in Ezekiel 39, in your place, then you won't, won't be able to come to me. You won't be saved. Flesh, Jesus' true humanity, his union with us as the last Adam, and his blood is his atoning death. He's, so he's one with us in our humanity, in our flesh, and he's one with us in death and in judgment, where we're crucified with him, and then raised to life in him. So the path to being raised up in the last day must be through faith in Jesus, not only as the Son of God and the bread from heaven and the living water, but as the one who's been crucified and has risen. He must enter that judgment. We can't have Jesus without the cross. We can't have resurrection life without Christ going to the cross and us going in him through that cross.